You know, we were, have been learning in uh, Sabbath school uh, about Paul. And one of the things uh, that we mentioned today and we have studied in the past few weeks is that Paul likens the um, Christian warfare to that of a race that's being run. And I want to talk about uh, this warfare in a sense. Um, would you agree that the spiritual life is a battle? So it's, it's kind of obvious to us that we are in a war, isn't it? When you read the Bible, the Bible says that those who love the world, they're at enmity with God, right? That means there's a hatred, doesn't it? That means that there is a conflict. And I want to talk about that because we cannot win a battle ourselves. It's not within us to do. We need help, don't we? And just the fact that we fall shows that we need help. Isn't that true? The Bible is a book that depicts countless battles. You can go from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it describes and talks about battles, um, both physical battles and wars and spiritual wars that rage. Physical wars have dominated history from the time, really, that Cain killed his brother Abel. And right down to today. And that really shouldn't surprise us. You know, because Jesus predicted this would be the case. If you look at Matthew 24, you can see that. Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, And ye shall hear of, what was that? Wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Isn't that interesting? You're going to hear of things. You're going to hear rumors of them. In fact, you may witness some of these things. But Jesus here, He comforts us, doesn't He? He says, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, of course, He was speaking to His disciples at the time, wasn't He? But there's a, a parallel to us that live today, isn't there? He says, For nation shall rise against nation. Is that true today? Yes. Absolutely. And kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines. Are there famines? He says, And pestilences. Are there pestilences? Uh, do we see an increase in such things? You know, from the time I was young, I never really paid that much attention to it because we, we didn't go to church. We didn't, you know... There wasn't, there wasn't this prophecy that we knew anything about, you know, or the end of the world. We, we just thought, well, you live for today. Now, of course, my parents raised us up as um, responsible people with good morals and the golden rule. But as you get into the Bible, you see this over and over. You see that there is a conflict. You see that there are these things that are going to happen. And why is it that they happen? Is it not because God is being neglected? We are moving further away from Him? And thus He has to remove Himself? Can God bless sin? No. And here Jesus says, There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Has there not been an increase in earthquakes? 
Has there not been, as a result of earthquakes, the massive destructive tsunamis? All we have to do is go back a little over a year and see Japan. March 11th, 2011. I think it was March 11th. Somewhat, it was in March, I know. Incredible destruction. Well, we see this. However, the primary focus of the Scriptures really is the ongoing battle between who? Christ and Satan, isn't it? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. We're told in Revelation that uh, what began as a war in heaven will soon end, the battle of, uh, soon end in the battle of Armageddon. Isn't that right? In this conflict between the forces of good and the powers of evil, light and truth is under constant attack from uh, deception and darkness. Isn't that right? And whether we like it or not, every single one of us is involved. Whether we realize it or not. As I was a kid, we never realized it. But we were involved. This spiritual war is not over some planet, really, or over a piece of ground. It is, it's really what it is. It's, it's over control of the human mind and heart. That's what the battle really is about. Both Jesus and the devil are supremely interested in winning possession of our minds and hearts. For this reason, Christians are called to be more than spectators, more than uh, mediators in this conflict. Isn't that right? Are we just to sit idly by or are we called to take up arms, so to speak? Paul, again, he had said that this is a Christian warfare. We are at war. So we must be committed front line in the trenches, warriors for the Master, Jesus Christ. Amen? As the Bible says, an army terrible with banners. Terrible with banners. You know, if you've, if you've done any research in history and, and you've read anything about uh, Alexander the Great, as he's called. When he approached enemies, they trembled. They saw his banners coming and they trembled. They often outnumbered his army. In fact, one of the battles that he won, one of the last battles he won, <laughs> Alexander's army, it's estimated, was outnumbered 30 to 1. And, that, and his enemy trembled though they outnumbered him 30 to 1. An army terrible with banners. Now, people aren't to... It's, it's not people who are to fear Christians, but it's the devil and his demons. That's the army that the, they fear. The Lord's army, terrible with banners. All of the literal battles in the Bible... If you look at them, from Gideon's conflict with the Midianites to David's uh, defeat of Goliath, they can serve to teach us how we might experience victory in our spiritual battles. Because these battles are of a spiritual nature. The weapons we use are to be spiritual weapons. You understand? You don't take a literal sword to fight a spiritual battle. <laughs> right? The great thing about it is that our battle armor is provided for us. 
to have victory in this spiritual warfare, and it is a spiritual battle. This is why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, and we're going to be going back to, you might as well go to Ephesians 6 and put your finger there. We'll be going to that and staying there pretty much. Uh, and this may be a review for some of, some of you, but it's always good to review. This is why Paul reminds us in verse six of Ephes- or verse twelve of Ephesians chapter six. He says, "We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but who do we re- who do we wrestle against?" And, and that word "wrestle" there means have you have you ever you know I grew up uh, in a public school system and in the sports realm, and my brother I, I never I wrestled. Uh, at times, but I never did it on the team. I was always into more of like the basketball, the baseball, the team sports like that. My brother was a wrestler. That's a pretty intimate conflict, isn't it? It's not something that you stand apart from and throw things at. It's hands-on and legs-on and feet-on, and right? And here Paul's saying, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So when you see that word wrestle, it's not something that you do from afar. It's intimate. It's close. It's hands-on. But he says, what do we wrestle against? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of where? This world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. I don't know about you, friends. I tell you what, I see where I see a, a prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy virtually every day. And if you understand Revelation 13 and 14 and the great conflict on into, you know, clear up to Revelation chapter 18, you see, you can see things and perceive things that are happening all around that are a fulfillment of that or will aid in the fulfillment of that. And we look back in Daniel and look at uh, uh, the different kingdoms that he was shown that would rule up until the time that Jesus returns. I see fulfillments. I see parts of that. Don't you see uh, parts of Babylon? Don't you see parts of uh, the culture of uh, the Medes and the Persians? Don't you see parts of the culture of Rome? Don't you see that around? What was the Medes and Persians? What, was, what were they really kind of known for? They were known for laws, weren't they? And, and they held to those laws and they had so many laws on the books that when he passed the law to throw Daniel down, you know, to destroy Daniel, well, he had to come out with another law to say, you know, well, they'll be thrown to the lions if he comes out of the den. <laughs> that reminds me of the United States. There's so many laws on the books. Who can keep track? When they, they come in, instead of uh, passing a, uh, bringing a bill before that's one or two pages, very simple, they have uh, this uh, uh, health care bill was what? 2,500, 3,000 pages? So much so that they don't even read it. My point is, we're dealing with spiritual wickedness in high places. We see in, in this spiritual conflict, it's going to be the forces of God against the forces of evil, which is depicted by Babylon, the Medes. Those are lessons for us to learn, spiritual lessons. And you can see parts of that. That's why that was a composite beast. See? It had parts of all of those kingdoms 
And that's what we see in our country today, friends. And it's against these powers, not flesh and blood. These powers use flesh and blood, though, don't they? Let's not aid them in their work. Amen? But this is why Paul reminds us that we, we wrestle not against each other per se. We're wrestling against the forces of evil. From In Heavenly Places, page 253, says, We do not understand as we should the great conflict going on between invisible agencies. The controversy between loyal and disloyal angels. We don't see it because our eyes are veiled. But we believe by faith that it is going on. And we may have had experiences, spiritual phenomenons in our life. I can tell you about a few things. And I've known people, too, that have experienced a few things. You'll see more and more of that as it comes towards that final battle. There's going to be a great deception, isn't there? Great miracles wrought? We're going to see such things. But is our mind going to be controlled by God or are we going to be controlled by our senses? Are we going to be deceived? See, because the, the senses is what deceives our mind. What do you think a mirage is? Have you ever seen a mirage? Have you ever experienced that? Your eyes can deceive you, can't they? Sometimes we don't hear correctly. Our hearing can deceive us. You see what I'm saying? And here she says, here is this, that we don't understand this great conflict going on between invisible agencies. And she goes on, she says, over every man. How many? Does that leave anybody out? No. Over every man, good and evil angels strive. Let that sink in. This is no make-believe conflict, she says. It is not mimic battles in which we are engaged. We have to meet most powerful adversaries, and it rests with us, notice this, she says it rests with us to determine which shall win. God created us as free moral beings, didn't He? So, we have a choice. In every conflict in our life, every spiritual battle that is raised, we have a choice. So although our armor and weapons are spiritual, this doesn't mean they are unreal. It doesn't mean that they are ineffective. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So they're spiritual weapons, but they, they are effective. They are real. Paul also makes it clear that the Christian's commitment to his cause and commander should be as real as for any earthly soldier. if you've experienced has anybody here been in the military I know Andrea you haven't been in the military I haven't either my father was in the military 
And I know several other, I have friends who have been in the military. And one of the things that they do in boot camp is to break your will. Your will is not your own will. You belong to the military. And they break you down so well, if they tell you to get up and run towards blazing gunfire, you get up and you run towards... You see what I'm saying? Paul here, he's saying that a Christian's commitment is like, he likens it to an earthly soldier's commitment. Only a Christian's commitment is to who? Jesus, see? And when Jesus says, get up and do this, we get up and we do it. But the thing about God is, He reasons with us, doesn't He? God doesn't force or break our will unless we give ourselves to Him. We say, your will be done, not our will. Isn't that true? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is where we read this. Paul is telling me, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Who were the soldiers in Paul's day, mainly? Weren't they Roman soldiers? Did they endure hardness? They were pretty hard, rough men. So Paul's telling Timothy, he said, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Jesus has chosen us to be soldiers for him. Now, thinking about that, when, when searching for what the Scriptures have to say about armor, it begins to look a bit bleak because, well, really, Saul's armor didn't fit David, did it? <laughs> and Goliath's armor, well, it was actually pretty useless against David's stone. <laughs> so, you know, it's also discovered, you look at it, that when a, a stray arrow found a... it did find a crack in Ahab's armor. And the wicked king died. So that armor didn't do him any good, did it? So it doesn't sound like armor does much good. <laughs> you know? But we must realize that we're not called to wear the faulty physical armor of Saul or of uh, Ahab or of Goliath. Rather, we got to put on the unfailing armor of God, right? It's a bit different. But more effective. In fact, at the very moment that Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he might well have been chained to a soldier who was wearing the armor of the Roman Empire, and uh, he used that as an example. Paul could see firsthand there how frail were the defenses of man against the prince of darkness. I think that's why he twice emphasized the armor of God. We need to put on the whole armor of God. It's also clear that Paul was a, really, if he, he was expanding on the words uh, of Isaiah. Isaiah said, you find it in Isaiah 59 and verse 17. Isaiah says, uh, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. Paul, you think he knew the scriptures? Paul was very well versed in the Scriptures. So it isn't too hard to see that we are to wear the armor of God and not the armor of man in this spiritual warfare. 
but we must be careful not to miss the double admonition to wear all of the articles that God provides. Ephesians chapter 6, again, verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God. And verse 13 declares, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. And this is really, friends, this is where many of us fail in our daily battles. We take some of the armor, but forget one or two maybe of the primary items, and we pay, and we may very well pay an eternal price if we continue to neglect to wear all of our battle armor. The Christian is vulnerable at many spots. And often that characteristic uh, he thinks is his strongest characteristic really turns out to be his weakest. Didn't we, didn't we just read that there are good and evil angels that are with every man battling? Do you think that they know whether we're wearing armor or not? Do you think they know where our weak points are? And, oh, yeah. It's just like a chain. A chain is only as strong as what? Its weakest link. To keep wearing it. And so just like that chain, uh, a Christian is no stronger than their weakest element of character. Yes. So there's a little punch of reality right there. So in view of the variety of foes that we have to meet and the very various weaknesses that we have, nothing less than the entire armor is going to suffice. So you'll notice in his letter to the Ephesian church that the Apostle Paul lists a total of six implements of earthly armor and he attaches a spiritual association to each one. He actually also adds a seventh powerful spiritual weapon in conclusion in the conclusion of his example. Okay, and we'll get to that too. So in the spiritual battle, there's actually seven uh, implements. But Paul uses six of the earthly to, to teach us something. If we go to Ephesians 6, begin with verse 13. It says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that she may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. That was our scripture reading. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, he says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And I'm going to break these down in a minute. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here's that seventh element. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. All perseverance means don't fall asleep on duty. (laughs) So let's consider these articles of defense Uh, Most of them are articles of defense. Uh, One by one, let's see what we can learn. Paul began by saying, having your loins girt about with truth. You'll notice this is the first one that he mentions. 
It's the first piece of armor that he mentions. It's the first piece of armor for a Christian to wear, and that's the truth, isn't it? You know, in Bible times, the cingulum, they called it the cingulum. It's, it was actually a belt. Uh, it was a soldier's badge of office. Every soldier had a particular belt that they wore. It also held together the soldier's clothing, which might hamper him in movements. You know, they had kind of a, a robe-type thing that came down, and if they were to, to march quickly or to run, it helped to pull that up. They belted it. If, what would happen if it fell down? You'd be exposed to the enemy, wouldn't you? You'd fall down and, you know, one of the things you'll notice here is there was no armor really on the back. If you exposed your back, that was a mortal mistake. Could be a mortal mistake. So, uh, you had this belt and the spiritual significance is that Bible truth is our badge of office. Isn't it? God wants us to wear it and have it wrapped about us. Not only does the belt hold everything in place, but it also serves to carry the sheath that holds the sword of the Spirit for quick access. Some people have the sword of God's Word, but without the belt of truth, they become, they become reckless. They come to reckless conclusions. They're not seeing the truth. Without a belt, your clothes may fall off and many confused Christians have fled naked and ashamed when challenged by the enemy because they didn't secure the belt of truth. They didn't have it wrapped around them. Has that ever been your experience? Have you had an experience like that? I want you never to forget that wearing the belt of truth really means wearing Christ. For He is what? The way, the truth, and the life. And this is why Paul said in Galatians 3, 27, he said, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That belt of truth. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, And ye shall know the truth, and what? The truth shall make you free. Exactly. Are you wearing the belt of truth today? I hope so. The next piece of armor that Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, it protected the front torso and all the vital organs, didn't it? It protected it from a mortal uh, wound. The breastplate could be composed of a solid piece of uh, metal. It could be uh, made of small pieces uh, of metal or leather that were sewn together, almost like a uh, uh, mainly back in his time it was metal sewn like the scales of a fish. See? They were overlapped. And these scales could number as many as 700 to 1,000 per coat. Imagine how heavy it was to wear. When the sun shone directly on the armor it could become very hot. Have you ever touched a piece of hot metal? <laughs> It burns, doesn't it? Well, they didn't just wear the metal over the top of them to avoid being burnt or pinched by the plates, which would be uh, probably pretty common. They wore a sturdy robe under the armor, under this breastplate. 
And we may conclude that the wearing of the uh, breastplate of righteousness is always in partnership then with the robe of Christ's righteousness. Job 29 verse 14 says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Isn't that something? It clothed me. When we consider the Old Testament sanctuary services, we see that the high priest wore a golden uh, breastplate over a linen robe, didn't he? And the breastplate was set with what? You remember? Stones. Twelve precious stones inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. This, this place, this placement on there, it represented nearness to the heart. In Exodus 28, and verse 29 says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. The only way we can experience victory in battle against the devil is through confidence, friends, that Jesus has us close to his heart. And his righteousness covers our hearts and we are forgiven. Isn't that true? When considering the breastplate, it's interesting to note that it covered, again, as I mentioned earlier, it covered the front of the person. It offered very little protection to the person's back. Soldiers were not to turn their backs toward the enemy and retreat. <laughs> There's a lesson there for us as Christians. We should stand firm, never surrender any ground to the devil. Instead, let the devil run and retreat from our loyalty to Jesus. Amen? Isn't that what James says? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's the first thing we, we do. Resist the devil. Isn't that what we're to do? Resist him. And then what does he do? He's a coward. He flees at the presence of God. The third piece of armor that Paul mentions is, he says, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Boots worn by Roman soldiers were strong. They were well ventilated. They had patterns of iron, what they called hobnails. They were like heavy tacks that were beat into the leather. So they were actually walking on pads of metal tacks. They were uh, especially designed to take the weight and withstand miles of marching. And they marched everywhere that they went. In the Bible, the foot is actually a symbol for the direction or the walk of a person's life. The gospel in this instance is not so much the the gospel, when he says, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it's not so much the, the gospel that is to be proclaimed, but the gospel that has found a home in the heart of the Christian. This is more of what he's talking about. It is, a, it is actually a beautiful and encouraging thought that the uh, warrior in the midst of spiritual conflict can stand firm for why? He actually has peace with God. And that's what Paul's referring to here. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, for God has forgiven you. And because He's forgiven you and He's given you armor and confidence, you can stand. See? You can walk a righteous life against the wiles of the enemy. 
It also gives us good footing. See? Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel gives us good footing that can prevent backsliding. And as we become involved in spreading the good news, because it does have a part to play, uh, it will strengthen us and others against the enemy's attack. In Isaiah 52 and verse 7, we read, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good things, that publisheth salvation. Like I mentioned earlier today, you know, in Sabbath school, they didn't jump on a, into a car and drive somewhere in this time. They didn't have an airport they went to and flew somewhere. They didn't have texting. They had couriers that would take messages. You would hire a courier to take a message to someone that you, uh, you know, needed to, to contact. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good things. Good tidings, good news. Paul could have said the same thing about Titus. When Titus came and said, they accepted your, your first letter, your message, they have repented, and they are now back in the fold. Paul may have even quoted Isaiah 52.7. <laughs> when I was younger, before I was a Christian, I used to be a big hockey fan. And I'd often go with my friends to, to Indianapolis. They had a semi-pro team. It was kind of a farm club team of the Islanders, New York Islanders. And it is inevitable in a hockey game that a fight will break out. I saw my share of fights. <laughs> and I always found it amusing to watch these men, these grown men, trying to fight each other while wearing ice skates. It was like a couple of clowns. It was actually rather humorous. They're, they're sliding all over the place. Having good footing in a fight is essential for victory, isn't it? Otherwise, we're prone to slide all over the place <laughs> like these guys did. That's why they would always grab the other guy's jersey and they would hold each other and then hope to get you know a punch in or whatever. We need to have good footing as Christians. Good, solid footing. The other thing is we've we got to keep our gospel footwear on our feet. We don't take it off. I read a story one time about a boy who was hiking in some uh, blistering hot desert mountains. And uh, he came a, a, across a large mountain stream. It was fast-flowing. And so, what's he do? He takes a drink, because it's hot. And then he takes his boots and his socks off to cross the creek because he didn't want to get them wet. But when he gets into the creek, it's slippery, and a fall, he falls, and of course, what happens? He loses his boots and his socks. He then described, as I was reading this, the agony of hiking barefoot for miles on burning hot rocks throughout the cactus-lined trails of the mountains. Friends, the lesson is that you don't want to be caught without your gospel footwear on when you're journeying through the wilderness of temptation. Because the devil knows our weaknesses. And he's always on our trail. 
Don't remove your gospel shoes for any reason. The fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith, Paul says. The shield of faith. The Roman soldier, or yeah, I'll use the Roman soldier, his first line of defense was his shield. They were usually made of wood or bronze. Uh, some of them had leather, uh, um, a real thick leather on the outside of them. Um, and they were, they were big enough to protect, if they kind of crouched, it protected the whole body from attack. Especially, you know, from arrows. They were getting arrows at that time. Uh, faith in Christ's blood is our first defense against the accuser, isn't it? You can go read Zechariah chapter 3. I think the first four or five verses kind of gives us a good indication of that. The enemy, our enemy, spiritual enemy, is constantly firing. He's firing volley after volley of those flaming arrows of temptation. The purpose of the shield of faith was to do what? Quench is what he says. Deflect those darts of the enemy. Prevent them from what? Making contact, right? What would be a shield for us? Let's say uh, you have a temptation to uh, uh, you watch something. How do you use a shield against that? You get rid of it, you don't watch it, right? Isn't that part of that, uh, um, what we talked about earlier today? Those principles of godliness practical godliness many Christians fall on the battlefield and fail to overcome evil because they wait until they are immersed in the fires of temptation before they make any effort to resist by then it's usually too late you already got your passion stirred up and it, it messes with your reasoning as soon as you recognize a dart sailing towards you, there is no time to lose, friends. You need to put up the shield of faith. Do everything in your power to uh, keep as much distance as possible between you and the temptation. If uh, Whatever the temptation may be, Jesus said, pluck it out if your eye offends you. Cut it off. In other words, separate from it, right? It's like the boy, uh, I read one time, what was it, the story of the, the boy who uh, continually got caught skipping school and he was at the fishing uh, hole and his mother said, you know, you're to go straight to school. And he got up the next morning, had his fishing pole and he was walking to school and said, what's that for? Well, in case I want to go fishing. You don't take it with you if you're not one to do it. You know, if you have a problem with uh, drinking, you don't go to the bars. If you have a problem, you don't go to the liquor store and put them in your cabinet. You don't hide that little secret bottle wherever. You haven't really gained a victory then, have you? The devil doesn't need any help, does he? The uh, shields... Of old, those old old shields that the Roman soldiers had, they were varied in their designs. Most were marked with the insignia or name uh, of 
whoever the ruler was at that time, a king. It helped the soldiers avoid fighting their own comrades in the confusion of battle. That would be a good thing, wouldn't it? We see the same today in, in militaries in different countries. They have their own insignias. In the same way, when the devil sends his arrows of temptation, we're to hold up the shield bearing the insignia of Jesus, King Jesus. And through faith in his name, we can resist any enticement. Isn't that what he said? Paul gives us these words, 1 Corinthians ten 13. We're familiar with them. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, we can overcome every temptation because God has made a way of escape for every one of them. The fifth piece of armor was the helmet of salvation. The helmet worn by the Roman soldiers it was made of metal and designed to protect the head and the face and neck without blocking their vision. Centurions and other officers wore crests, they called them, on their helmets. So, you know, they, those plumes that would come up. And that's so their men could actually see them and follow them into battle. Where's my leader out? They, where's he at? And they'd look and they'd see that. And they would follow them into battle. There are several uh, Bible stories that stress the importance of prote protecting the head while in battle. <laughs> I mean, for instance, uh, you remember Abimelech? He died because he charged the city wall without first putting on his helmet. Judges 9, verse 53. And a certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull didn't have his helmet on. <laughs> doesn't mean it might not have still killed him, but he didn't have his helmet on. Another instance, wearing a helmet improperly proved to be a fatal mistake. We know what Goliath did, don't we? He became so outraged at David that David would dare come against him. He said, what am I, a dog, he said, that you send this little flea out here, you know? And David... Gets his sling, and there goes that rock. And what, what had Goliath done? We're told that he had raised his helmet up to see. I imagine he was looking down. He's a big man. He was a giant. He's looking down. It might have come down over his eyes, and he's looking at David because David's a little guy. Raises it, and where'd that stone hit? Perfect shot. And the giant came tumbling down. The purpose for this helmet of salvation is not only to keep out the rocks, <laughs> friends, but also to keep in the brains. Your mind should not be open to anything and everything. And as we study and come to understand God's Word, uh, there should be a settling in of the truth. See? Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. We need to have a settling in of the truth. When you settle in on what is true, that can't be shaken. See? That's what the testimony of uh, the true witness is for. To settle you into the truth so that you cannot be shaken. 
Your body has seven openings from the neck up, doesn't it? Two nostrils, two ears, two eyes, one mouth. We must firmly strap the helmet of salvation in place and guard these avenues to the soul. God's Amazing Grace, page 34, it says, God bids us fill the mind with great thoughts, pure thoughts. He desires us to meditate upon His love and mercy, to study His wonderful work in the great plan of redemption. Then clearer and still clearer will be our perception of truth, higher, holier, our desire for purity of heart and clearness of thought. The soul dwelling in the pure atmosphere of holy thought will be transformed by communion with God through the study of the Scriptures. By beholding, we become changed. If we behold Jesus, we will be changed more and more into His image. If we don't, we'll be changed into whatever we're watching. The sixth piece of armor that Paul mentioned is, he mentions is the sword of the Spirit. It was called the gladius. It was a, at least to the Romans, it was a gladius. It was a short sword. It had a double-edged blade. It was terribly good for stabbing. It cut both ways. The sword was the most common weapon in battle at that time. Uh, you can look up in the Bible and the word sword or swords appears 448, about 450 times in Scripture. It's quite a lot. Notice that the other implements of armor in God's arsenal are defensive in nature. Did you notice that? They were all basically, all the armaments you put on are defensive. But the sword is primarily an offensive weapon. In fact, the sword of God's Word is what Jesus used against the devil, isn't it? When Jesus said, I do not come to bring peace but a sword, He wasn't saying that, that He, the Prince of Peace, had come to start a war. <laughs> Physical war, necessarily, like the armies. Rather, He was pointing out that the sword of God's Word was a, it has a dividing effect. It cuts. Several times this sword is depicted as having two edges. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a pretty mighty sword, isn't it? Then again in Revelation 1.16, the Bible says, He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went, what? A sharp two-edged sword. The two edges of the Spirit's sword, well, you could liken it to the, the two witnesses of God's Word, the New and Old Testaments. It's also called the, uh, a two-edged sword because it is used both against the enemy and for personal use. We see an example of that personal use, so to speak, in Acts chapter 16. Remember Paul, they were there in prison and there was the earthquake and the, uh, the keeper, he took out his sword. He was going to kill himself. He thought they had fled. Acts 16 verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do, not, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. 
So like the Philippian jailer there, we must be ready to apply the sword of God's Word to ourselves. It's not always used for offense against the enemy. It can be used for ourselves. You know, ancient soldiers used their swords for almost anything. I mean, cooking, uh, splitting, kindling up, cutting ropes that bound uh, their captives to set them free. Doesn't that sound like what the sword of truth does for us? The sword of the, the Spirit. Swords were kept clean by frequent use or by honing them against a stone or another friend's sword. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, Iron sharpeneth iron. They would do that a lot. Keep it fresh. Uh, when we study the Bible with others, our skill in the Word is to be sharpened, and it usually is, isn't it? A soldier traveling in enemy territory never left his sword out of reach. <laughs> are we in enemy's territory? Well, maybe not right here, right now, but most often we are, aren't we? So, in the same way, as I said, uh, I was quoting First Peter before, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How can you give an answer if you, you haven't studied, if you haven't used the sword? The last of the armor is really an attitude. And I call it armor. It's really an attitude, Ephesians 6 and verse 18. Paul says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all uh, perseverance and supplication for all saints. Any general knows that victory almost always depends upon which army has the element of, surpri of surprise. You see, many battles throughout history that it was a surprise attack that won the victory. In the story of Gideon, the, the soldiers were chosen based upon their watchfulness. And they caught the enemy sleeping and won through surprise. Of course, it was a victory by God, wasn't it? But it was through surprise. What does it mean? What, what do I mean by uh, his soldiers were picked because of their watchfulness? You remember how they were chosen? What was the differences? Some tarried to drink of the water. Well, some... Some got down like this, and like a dog, and some kept their heads up and brought the water up. They kept watch, see? And this is how they were chosen. The vast majority, you know, took their eyes off, or like you said, they tarried, they, you know. And so we need to watch, have our eyes open. Persevere, Paul said here, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Even the best armor is useless if the soldiers are found asleep. Right? We're commanded to be watching thereunto, he says, with all perseverance. Um, Matthew 26, verse 41, Jesus said, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Mark 13, 33, Take ye heed, watch and pray. You'll see it over and over again. Jesus says we are to persevere and to watch. Keep our eyes open. Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 5.6, he said, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. 
That means serious, doesn't it? Why is that? What's Peter say? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, does he sleep? No. As a roaring lion, Peter says, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. And if you're asleep on post, he could be devouring you. A surprise attack. All prayer is essentially the same thing as what Paul says about praying without ceasing. It doesn't mean we go about on our knees all day. <laughs> you know, like Martin Luther, Brother Tim brought up, you know, there were such men throughout history that were called for a specific time. Well, where was he at when it dawned on him the truth of God's Word? Wasn't he crawling on his knees upstairs? Bloody knees? That's not what this means. It means that we are to be constantly aware of God's presence and know that we have an enemy that's stalking us. In communication, an attitude with God. What would the Lord have me do here? How do I behave now? What is it that I do here? Keeping my eyes open. At one moment, exactly. In the story of Nehemiah, God's people were under constant threat of attack, weren't they? We actually find a good example of this watching thereunto with all perseverance. In Nehemiah 4, it says, They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held what? A sword. He held a weapon. Aren't we to be repairers of the breach? What is our weapon? Isn't it God's Word? For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Yeah. They watched while they worked. They were always watching for the enemy. Do we do that? Do we get distracted in our work? It's a lesson, isn't it? In his lesson here, Paul urges us three times to stand with the armor. Did you catch that? An army is no better than its discipline. Without discipline, it's doomed. That's why I said in boot camp, they break you. They break your will. You are to jump when they say jump and do when they say do. Immediately. Discipline. And it's time that we as God's soldiers stop simply discussing His commands and begin obeying them. Isn't that right? <laughs> fight the good fight of faith, Paul said to Timothy. I'm sure you've heard that saying. You know, there, there's another saying. Maybe you'll recognize it. If you don't stand for something, well, you guys have heard it. You'll fall for anything. One of King David's mighty men was named Eliezer. You remember his story? He became famous because when the army of Israel retreated and fled from the enemy, he stood his ground by David. And the two of them fought back to back. And God gave them an incredible victory over the Philistines. Exercising faith gives you victory over the enemy. You have to stand. Sometimes even though others flee, you have to stand and fight the good fight of faith. 
I remember watching a documentary one time on the. Uh, I'm a, for for you brothers here, the rest of them know I'm kind of a history buff. I I love to read history and such. And I was watching a document documentary on the Civil War, you know, United States Civil War, and um, uh, there was one time. <clears throat> They showed about this battle. There was a, a fierce battle. One northern company was uh, fighting under a hail of bullets to take a hill from the south. And the south had the higher ground. And after making progress up halfway up the hill, the, the soldiers became discouraged by this barrage and they began to retreat back down the hill. Then they noticed that their standard bearer wasn't retreating. He carried the company flag. He was refusing to fall back. Now, a standard bearer's job was to hold the flag over the territory occupied by his army. And so they noticed that he wasn't retreating and he was standing there and they hollered up to him and they said, bring the standard down to us. Follow us. But despite the fact that the cannons were going off and there were bullets whizzing by, he, he was courageous and he was unwilling to yield an inch. He stood his ground. And he called back up, No, you come up to where the standard is. And I thought, what a powerful spiritual lesson that is. And this inspired his comrades. And they renewed their efforts and they actually took the hill. Because of this man's stand. Now there are all kinds of stories you can read about in wars and in the Civil War. There are a number. There are actually an incredible amount of spiritual lessons that can be learned in the in the Civil War. It was a spiritual battle when you boil it down. Satan's tried to destroy this country many times because this country is a country of prophecy. He still tries. But God's Word is going to come true. God has seen the end from the beginning. But here is a, a valuable lesson for us. When everyone else retreats, what are we to do? We're to hold the line, aren't we? We're to stand. If you were baptized, you made a promise to God, did you not? And the force of that commitment has not diminished nor will it ever diminish. When you enlisted in God's army, you promised to work in and attend a church. You, you promised to obey the truth that you learned. You promised to return tithe, to, to dress modestly, to eat and drink to the glory of God, to care for your body temple, to share the gospel. Isn't that what you promised God? God calls you to be extraordinary. He calls you to be different because you are. You're a member of the Lord's army. That's different than people in the world. If you've been tempted to retreat, turn around and come back to His standard. <laughs> As I close this, I want to be uh, assuring. I want to give you assurance. I want to encourage you that although we are in a war, we need not fear. And then Jesus said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't let that trouble you. God's Word tells us 
how the battle will end, and He tells us who's going to have the victory. The God who provides our battle armor guarantees His army's victory and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So how can we stand? How can we fight? Paul gives us the answer in the beginning of our passage. Ephesians 6 verse 10, he says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Jesus said, Without me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. But we are assured that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Isn't that right? All that we need was purchased at Calvary with the blood of God's own Son, friends. All we need. And just as Jonathan so loved David that he gave him his armor, he gave him his sword, he gave him his robe, he gave him the very throne, actually, so Jesus gives us all that we need to be assured of total and final victory. I'll close with this scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58. Paul says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Friends, I want to encourage you. A victory has been won for us. We are in a spiritual war and we need to put on the whole armor of God. And as Brother Tim had mentioned, never take it off because the devil never sleeps. Our enemy never sleeps. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, that you have provided victory through us. You provide us armor in our, our Christian walk, in our battles with temptation. You have provided the armor. And Lord, I pray that those hearing my voice, those seeing me, will grow in faith and put on the whole armor that you've provided. We try to put on our own armor and we fail because it's faulty. Your armor is perfect. So Lord, as we go about our daily walk and our, and our work for you in the mission field, may we learn the lesson from Nehemiah that as we do the work, we need to have this armor on and have our weapon in our hand. We never know when the devil may strike. We may never know when we may be a witness to some soul who needs encouragement and care and needs to know Jesus. Please bless us to that end, to bring glory to thy name and to have and share in that victory so when Jesus comes, we may be among the redeemed and all that we come in contact to. May we be a powerful witness to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.